Welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Buja. Alas, once again, Alex Riviello cannot be here. There was a last-minute family issue. We wish him all the best and uh, maybe a little a little peace of mind in, in these trying times. However, the show must go on. And joining me for a drink down at Butch's this week is friend of the podcast, for, uh, you know, former former guest, and host of his own show, The Pop Culture Lens, fabulous work, Mr. Chris Olson. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Steve. Thank you for having me on again. Oh, it's, uh, it's excited. I, I am excited to have you back. You uh, bring, you class up the joints immediately. <laughs> you just like, you increase, you increase the general knowledge that we, uh, of the discussion that we have. Uh, I, the Unforgiven episode that you were on is, I think, one of my favorites, just the, for the for the depth of the discussion that, that we had. And I have you to thank for that, so I'm looking forward to having a uh, little one-on-one about the best years of our lives, the 1946 Best Picture winner, a film that you were very insistent upon talking about, which is strange because I've had a lot of people, like, you know, I've sent out a lot of feelers to other, you know, movie geeks, podcast hosts, about what movie they would want to talk about, and it's always... Yeah, Lord of the Rings, for instance. Something more modern. Amadeus. Everybody wants to talk about Amadeus. You are the only one I think to want to talk about something, to talk about anything before the 70s. And it's the best years of our lives. And I'm wondering, why was that? Well, uh, I would have been happy to come in and talk about Amadeus because Amadeus <laughs> is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, but this movie I am quite fond of, actually. Um I'm a big fan of, of classic cinema, uh, and to me, after I, I think the 1970s is is probably the best decade for film, but I think the 1940s is a very very close uh, second. And this film uh, kind of holds a special place in my heart because I talk a lot about it in my class on masculinity and communication that I teach uh, at Dominican University. Uh, because the way I structure the class is we look at masculinity uh, as, as a sort of changing thing over historical periods and in different uh, geographical locations and stuff. And I start by talking about World War II, uh, because when we talk about masculinity in the United States, a lot of our ideas about masculinity sort of are rooted in uh, uh, our ideas of World War II, you know, it was the greatest generation and so many men were kind of men and they went off and fight and did what a man had to do and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and I think this film is really interesting for how it examines uh, uh, the post-war masculinity and trying to go from uh, that that mindset of, of going off to war and fighting for our values and truth and justice in the American way and all that stuff, and then trying to reintegrate into a society that was still pretty much the same, but had changed a lot because of all the men leaving and then women leaving the, the home and going into the workforce and, and all that sort of stuff. So I find this movie really interesting uh, for that portrayal. Uh, and plus, I, you know, it's just got great performances. 
uh, I think Dana Andrews is great, and yeah. it's got Myrna Loy, and I, I can't hate a movie that has Myrna Loy <laughs> in it because I love her. Um, but yeah, I think I find that there's a lot to sort of dig into with this movie. Okay, that is a very precise answer. That also, I think you just answered a, I don't know, like a, half of my question. So this <laughs> should be, no, we can we can certainly dig into those more. I oh, I, I, we uh, we absolutely we absolutely will. Okay, watching this, I it it took me a while, but I realized yes. This is a very Chris Olsen movie. I understand why he would uh, why he would want to discuss this. I uh, talk about it in your in your class. So that's I I really I would love to take a take a class of yours to to especially to get into all the um, the masculinity stuff. Um, it is a it's an older film. So could you, in your own eloquent way, tell the folks what it is about in case they have not ever seen or, as I suspect, perhaps even heard about it? Sure. So uh, this movie was released in 1946, uh, and it was directed uh, by William Wyler, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, directed by William Wyler. And William Wyler had actually gone off to World War II. He was one of five big-name directors. It was him and Frank Capra, um, John Huston, um, now I'm blanking on the other two. Uh, but uh, five directors went off to World War II uh, and were in involved in you know producing all these uh films for the war effort and stuff and when they came back they were all kind of going back into their roles within hollywood and william wyler wanted to make a film that would present the experience of coming back from the war so in the film we have uh three lead characters uh it is dana andrews harold russell and I'm, oh, who is that? Frederick Marsh. Frederick Marsh. Uh, playing these three soldiers who are returning home from the war. <clears throat> they weren't friends in the war. They ended up uh, uh, getting on a plane together back home and formed a bond. And they all lived in the same town. So they kind of uh, were there to support each other. And we follow each of these characters as they sort of try to reintegrate into society. Frederick March is an older gentleman. I think he's supposed to be in his 40s in the film. And he is... Right. Yeah. He's married to uh, Myrna Loy's character. And uh, he's kind of the atypical family man. They have two kids. He's a banker. Uh, all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and then you have uh, Dana Andrews, who is a younger man. He's probably in his... I think he's supposed to be in his 20s. Really? Because he, he's got the he's got the, the build and gait and... Uh, personality of a thirty-year-old man. I mean, he he was a captain in the in the uh, air force. So yeah, I was gonna say it could be either twenties or early thirties, but you know everybody kind of looked older back then. They and... did. <laughs> it, was, it, was hard, it was all that hard living. I assume. Yeah, but he's kind of a uh, a younger guy. He got married right before he went to the war. He comes back to his wife, uh, and they find that they're not really that compatible, right. and uh, that that has some uh, problems for Dana Andrews' character. And then you have the character played by Harold Russell. You have Homer. And mm -hmm. Homer, uh, and Harold Russell's a really interesting figure because he plays this character who had his hands blown off in the war uh, and they were replaced with hooks. Right. And Harold Russell was not an actor prior to this film. He was a soldier who lost his hands in the war and William Wyler uh, cast him in this film uh, to sort of 
have some verisimilitude, some sort of uh, authenticity to the character. Uh, and he's a very young guy. He's probably late teens, early 20s. Uh, and you see him trying to sort of reconnect with his childhood sweetheart who uh, they were supposed to be married, but then the war interrupted that. And now he feels inadequate because he lost his hands and he's having a very hard time sort of uh, dealing with that. Yeah. And we follow these three characters as they try to uh, fit back into civilian life. Uh, and they all have their, their challenges as they do that. Um, I don't know if I want to get too spoilery or anything yeah. yet. But... Not yet, not yet. We'll, yeah. We could save that for the actual discussions. <laughs> but that was a very, uh, was a good, good summary of what is going on. So it's a, it's a home front movie. It's a mm -hmm. coming home film. Do you have a particular affinity for these kind of films? Not not necessarily the war films, but your deer hunters, your actual coming homes, the 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 more personal, intimate looks at the psyche and mind and lives of a soldier. Do you like? Is that something that you are a topic you are particularly interested in? Does it is it relevant to your work at Dominican uh, and stuff like that? Well, it's definitely relevant to my work just in terms of uh, how it's presenting masculinity uh, and in particular American masculinity, um, because I've never been in the military. I'm not a soldier. I have a lot of family who has been involved in the military, but I was never cut out for being a soldier. Um, but I find that I am drawn to movies that have that sort of stereotypical uh, masculinity. Like, you know, my favorite movie is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and and uh, Drive is, is another one of my favorite films. Uh, these movies that sort of present these very uh, uh, specific types of masculine characters. And I find war pictures uh, very interesting for that portrayal. Uh, but I find movies where we watch characters trying to wrestle with uh, uh, their place within society to be really interesting, stuff like, like the best years of our lives, because these are characters who are coming back uh, from this very traumatic and, and uh, overwhelming kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And now they're being asked to sort of suppress all the things that they were, they were called upon to unleash on the enemy. Uh, and, when you see a character like Homer, uh, played by Harold Russell, who is dealing with this uh, sort of self-consciousness about the fact that he is no longer a, he's no longer a complete man. Uh, and he has to kind of come to terms with that. I find, I find those types of stories uh, very, very interesting uh, just because of how they sort of present the idea that, um, you know our our perception of ourselves as men as as manly figures uh, is not necessarily fixed. There's you know we have to kind of negotiate a lot of things, and I think Best Years of Our Lives uh, does a really good job of of showing how these different characters are all kind of navigating them in their own way. Yeah, if that makes any sense. It it does it does. They are warriors who having done their job now have to shed that that cloth and that is by all accounts not an easy task to do and they are 
in, in addition to that, they are also facing their own personal demons. There's a t- there's a bit of uh, what I what I think was still referred to back then as shell shock, now known as uh, PTSD, and mm-hmm. uh, ha- and the the manly outlets that they have, which for the most part is drinking. There's mm-hmm. Frederick Marx does just a, a, a ton of drinking to great effect, but it's uh, I can only imagine being part of the greatest generation and having to go through this. And it is a discussion I'm certainly looking forward to having uh, later on. Right now, mm-hmm. we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the 1946 Academy Awards. We're the best years of our lives. Clean house. Stay tuned. I want to tell you all that the reason for my success as a sergeant is due primarily to my previous training in the Corn Belt Loan and Trust Company. The knowledge I acquired in the good old bank, I applied to my problems in the infantry. For instance, one day in Okinawa, a major comes up to me and he says, Stevenson, you see that hill? Yes, sir, I see it. All right, he said. You and your platoon will attack said hill and take it. So I said to the Major, but uh, that operation involves considerable risk. We haven't sufficient collateral. I'm aware of that, said the Major, but uh, the fact remains that there is the hill and you are the guys who are going to take it. So I said to him, I'm sorry, Major. No collateral, no hill. So we didn't take the hill and we lost the war. Uh, I think that uh, little story has considerable significance, but I've uh, I've forgotten what it is. The Best Years of Our Lives won seven Academy Awards that year. Best Picture, obviously. Best Actor to Frederick March, who played uh, Alan Stevenson. I believe is that his name? Uh, yes, I believe that's the character's yes, name. Yes, the uh, the the older gentleman who's just fantastic. Harold Russell also picked up Best Supporting Actor, but we will. So we're going to put him to the side a little bit, come back to that in just a few moments. William Wyler won Best Director. I believe he uh, he was, he was also directed Ben-Hur and Mrs. Miniver. He is, the I believe, the only director to have directed three Best Picture winners. Uh, if best, best Regular Pictures. Fellini directed four Best Foreign Language Film winners, but I think Wyler has the, uh, at least the tie on... On the number of movies that have that he has directed, that one best uh, best picture. He did not win for Miniver, I believe. Although I'd have to check on that, and I should know for Ben Hur, but I honestly don't remember. I know we did that episode and everything. Uh, in addition, also picked up uh, screenplay, editing, and best scoring and dramatic comedy, which is a fun little category. I kind of wish they'd bring back, but <coughs> these things change over time. I'd rather take a best stunt category over a further balkanization of any sound uh, recordings and whatnot. Speaking of which, Best Sound Recording was it was also nominated for. That was the only one it lost that year. Now, uh, going back to Harold Russell, Chris, as you said, Harold Russell was a non-professional actor. He was picked up from a I believe World War II training video. I believe so. I believe <laughs> yeah, that's w- the story watch it. it. Yeah, he, uh, he lost his hands in a... Uh, dynamite accident they were blown off it's just just awful and i will be it took me i had to google this like i like pause the movie be like 
wait, did this dude actually lose his hands? Because he's he's really good at this, and it seemed so like he didn't have the weird fake like oh they're just he's like holding his hand back to make his arm look shorter like no he actually lost his hands so uh he was a non-professional actor uh but he also became two things he became the first non-professional actor to win an acting award best supporting actor and he also became the only person in history to win two academy awards for the same movie uh, at the time, it was presumed Harold Russell would not win Best Supporting Actor. So the Board of Governors, the governing body of the uh, Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, decided to give him a special award for his portrayal of Homer. So he won that. And then uh, a few moments later, he won Best Supporting Actor as well, which uh, he was teary-eyed and very grateful to, uh, to everyone. It was uh, very touching. Uh, later on, the only other non-professional actor to win was uh, Hong S. Noir for The Killing Fields in 1985, the great and very depressing movie about the, uh, uh, about, uh, the Khmer Rouge. So that's, that's fine company right there, Harold Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah and, that, and that honorary award, uh, just from what I'm looking uh, online, it was for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. Yeah. I'm just thinking about it. Would there, I don't know if like, would such a thing exist these days? Would we hire non-professional actors for a war movie? And wait, scratch that. We did. It was called men of valor or something. And it was terrible because <laughs> because they, they hired like actual, I think special force forces guys to do all the action, but it was not, it was not a good movie. And at the same time, like you didn't, it didn't seem like anything better than what they do in regular Hollywood. But regardless, um, it's strange how time just goes and how we deal with the. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's it does have a lot to do with how we view war these days. War is mm -hmm. a, uh, it's. T uh, I believe one in ten men were uh, all part of World War Two back in the day, and I think only one in. 20 the one in 30 or something are now involved in any any sort of combat whatsoever so there's it was not it was not a very s the wars these days are do not change society like they did back in world war ii so yeah and there was a more much more widespread uh perception of war as this sort of glamorous glorious heroic thing mm -hmm. uh back during world war ii and it's since then lost some of its luster in the popular imagination. Yeah. Vietnam will do that to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the best years of our lives is not necessarily a done deal. It did have to win, obviously. And there were a couple of other good movies that came out that were nominated for Best Picture. Chris Oslin, take it away. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the best years of our lives, the other films that were up for the best picture that year were uh, Henry V, the uh, Laurence Olivier production, yep. uh, which I found kind of interesting because it was released in 1944, uh, but this was from the 1947 awards. I'm not sure what the time lag uh, was, account how to account right. for that, unless it was just, you know, its release in the United States or something. I believe that's generally what happened, I think, due to the way 
things were marketed and re- distributed back then, it took a while. For instance, you have uh, La Strada being released in mm. um, 55 and winning in 57 or, or something uh, something along those lines. So it's, I think it's when the movie is released in New York and L.A. Those are the two qualifying cities, in case you, don't, in case you didn't know, that determines its eligibility for the year. But what's, uh, what's also strange is that at the time, the Academy was going through a bit of an anti-British phase. Mm. And... Olivier was not. Olivier kind of knew he wasn't going to win, but he he was actually kind of surprised he was. Uh, the film was actually nominated. I think he either won. I forget wh- if it was either before or after, but he would win for his interpretation of Hamlet, mm. which is uh, one of the great ones. Yeah, it's a good movie. I mean, yeah, and his Henry V is, is quite good as well. Yeah. Oh, um, nineteen forty-eight. Two years. Two years later, he would win. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um. But in addition to that, you had uh, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, uh, of course. And then uh, one that I am not familiar with, but The Razor's Edge. Uh, which, is a, which is yeah, which is another uh, coming home movie. Mm. This this one about uh, was about World War One. I, I uh, I've never heard of it before. Uh, it sounds fascinating though. Like I'm actually like I'm kind of curious to to check this one out. It seems. Could be interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look for that one uh, as well. Uh, and then rounding out the best picture nominees was The Yearling, uh, which uh, I believe I've seen. I, I might have seen <laughs> it as a kid. I feel like it's a movie that, that I watched uh, in a class as a child uh, because it is based on a book. Uh, you know, it's very literary, uh, and it's one of those stories that uh, is kind of along the lines of like where the red fern grows. Uh, that sort of thing where it's a coming of age tale with uh, uh, an animal that uh, becomes very beloved uh, and then dies <laughs> and uh. causing forcing the the young person to to uh, face death and therefore become an adult or whatever uh, so along the lines of like old yeller or where the red fern grows that right. sort of thing oh i thought that sounded familiar like oh, wait a minute did I, I might have read that when i was younger mm-hmm. but uh, looking at this list, uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" is the one that stands out as the one that time has treated the best. People have mm. remade it. The, the concept of "It's a Wonderful Life" is, I think, just done over. It's done at least once a year on Hallmark. I am sure of it. Uh, the other ones, uh, maybe not so much. So, I, you know, it does seem like it's, it'd be a race between "Best Years of Our Lives" and "It's a Wonderful Life." Like to be to be to be fair, to be honest. Yeah, and, and for anybody. Uh, who is interested, there's a really great book uh, called Five Came Back, uh, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War by Mark Harris. Uh, And it's, I mentioned earlier about how William Wyler went off to war and joined, uh, you know, he was was filming uh, 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 instructional films and and things like that for the war. And Frank Capra also did that. And they had kind of a friendly rivalry going on uh, at, during this period. And, and Harris, really does a good job of, of uh, discussing all of that stuff. Uh, oh, and the other two directors, I remembered it was it was John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens. George uh, so Stevens, yes. Yeah, yes, okay. so it's all about their sort of adventures during World War II. That it sounds like it'd make it like a hell of a miniseries or something. You just have these five guys. That'd be, oh, AMC, get on that, please. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there were other movies that came out in 1946, and the next two that I say, or that we say, 
I think we can all agree that maybe they should have been up there in and you know replacing one of the other films and that is Notorious and the Big Sleep. Mm. Uh just two incredible works of genre, right? Just <sighs> <laughs> I, I like I get that I get that you know the Academy never honored Hitchcock except for giving the best picture to Rebecca which kind of works but they never gave it to him for director but man come on <laughs> uh, didn't the notorious didn't get nominated over a, a movie about a deer what you, what's happened I don't know. it's a touching story of uh, coming of age <laughs> it's it's so touching it's, it's, so, it's touching. so touching that we don't really remember if we've seen it or not. <laughs> and of course uh, and of course the big sleep uh, as well the um was that, was that uh raymond chandler was that him uh the adaptation so. yeah but, i'd have to double check it yeah i have so much going on in my head these days it's hard to keep track of it all it's uh, it's been a it's been a rough couple of weeks it's been the the worst weeks of our lives i think <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard nice to uh nice segue there yeah you like that see <laughs> and for the next half hour we're going to talk about the trump administration Woo! Hold, <sighs> hold on to your butts but speaking of speaking of fun things song of the south came out that year oh my everybody loves song of the south right that didn't <laughs> that hasn't aged poorly at all no well, i mean it, i guess it would kind of fit in with a discussion of the trump administration I given their stances <sighs> oh my god <laughs> And we should move on yes. to our next break, because when we come back, Chris Olson is mostly going to talk about the awesome themes of the best years of our lives. Don't worry, I'll chime in every now and then. But for the most part, this is Chris's show. So stick around. Hi. How are you, soldier? Say hello. Huh. Excuse me. Say, uh mind if I ask you a personal question? I know what it is. How do they get these hooks and how do they work? That's what everybody says when they start off. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Well, I'll tell you. I get sick and tired of that old pair of hands I have. You know, an awful lot of trouble washing them and manicuring my nails. So I trade them in for a pair of these latest models. They work by radar. Look. Pretty cute, eh? You've got plenty of guts. Terrible when you see a guy like you that had to sacrifice himself. And for what? And for what? I don't get you, mister. Well, Anything else for you? Check. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis, so we oh, had... Oh, the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the Limings and the Reds. And they would have wept them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. What are you talking about? We fought the wrong people, that's all. Just read the facts, my friend. Find out for yourself why you had to lose your hands. And then go out and do something about it. You better pay your check, brother, and go home. Well, who do you think you are? Be the cashier right over there. Yes, sir. There's another thing. Every sort of jerk in this country's got an idea he's somebody. Look here, mister. What are you selling, anyway? I'm not selling anything but 
plain old-fashioned Americanism. Some Americanism. So we're all a bunch of suckers, eh? So we should have been on the side of the Japs and the Nazis, eh? Again, I say, just look at the facts. I've seen a couple of facts. I've seen a ship go down, and over 400 of my shipmates went with it. Were those guys suckers? That's the unpleasant truth. And the sooner we get wise to it, the better off we're going to... Ooh, if I only had my hands... So, Chris, this will be a long conversation about the men in the movie, but I want to f- start first with the women of the film. We have uh, four of them. We have... Uh, let's see. I forget the actress's names. We have Myrna Loy. We have... Ter- Millie, Millie Stevenson. Millie Stevenson. We have Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, and finally, Kathy O'Donnell. How I feel as though the movie spends a lot of time developing the guys. Mm -hmm. It's a a movie about returning soldiers in the golden age of Hollywood. Like literally a year after the war ended. It's going to be about the dudes. I feel as though it doesn't give the women as much depth as it possibly should and that kind of took me out of the movie what is your take on how weiler handles the uh handles the ladies here i I agree with you to a to a point um because i think you know when you you have a character like virginia mayo's character she plays uh dana andrew's wife uh, in the the film she's the worst yeah she (laughs) i mean she plays marie Derry. Uh, they got married. He said they. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact line. He said something about how like they didn't even have 20 days together before he popped the question and then went off to war. Uh, so they're essentially, when he comes back, they're essentially getting to know each other. And he right. learns that she's kind of an awful woman. You know, she berates him for not having enough money, and she's always wanting to go out and have fun and party and, and, and all he, that sort of stuff. And he needs to wear the uniform, even though he doesn't want to wear the uniform. It's just Yeah. Like, he feels, he feels uncomfortable wearing it uh, now that he is out of the military, but there's that scene when he comes home to her apartment wearing his civilian clothes. And she's just, she, she's like, what are you wearing? Uh, and, and sort of bullies him into wearing it. Um, Seriously, my like, you're lucky. Like, ladies, you're lucky if I'm if I wear a suit jacket. I just like he like Dana Andrews. Is look at me. He looks good. At anything. But anyways, he's a handsome dude. He's, he is. He's he is. A, and and prunes give him the runes, uh, <laughs> as we learned in Rocky Horror. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, her character is so sort of positioned as as a villain to a degree. Uh, she kind of overshadows some of the other uh, female roles, um, which I think they're, they're to a point they're kind of really well developed. Especially Will, Wilma Cameron, who is Homer's uh, uh, fiance, and Millie Stevenson, who is the wife of Frederick March, March's character. Um, you also have. Uh, Teresa Wright, as you said, as Peggy Stevenson, that she's the daughter of Frederick March and Myrna Loy's characters. And she is also sort of underdeveloped to a degree because she is a teenager. She's a love-struck teenager right. who ends up sort of uh, falling head over heels for Dana Andrews' character. And, and you know, she is very much a teenage girl. and uh, uh, Love is everything. And 
if she can't be with him, then the world is ending and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, but <clears throat> I think where the film does a really good job uh, of presenting the women is with Millie and Wilma, uh, yes. because they, they both have, each of them has a really great scene uh, where they sort of uh, present themselves as these very sympathetic and strong women. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the scene where uh, Peggy comes in and says that she loves uh, uh, Fred, the, the Dana Andrews character, and she plans on breaking up his marriage and all this stuff. And and uh, when they when Al and Millie kind of confront her about that, she says, "Well, you don't understand. You don't know what love is. You've been you, you're so old, you can't deal with this." And Millie has that great speech about how many times have we fallen out of love and had to had to work our way back into it. And, and I mean, it, it could just be my obsession with Myrna Loy talking, but <laughs> she is so good in that scene because of, you can see the love and the, and the uh, uh, desire for Al in that moment, but also the sort of uh, the, the years that they have been together uh, and how they sort of are weighing on her. And, and as she's getting wistful about all the times they've had to uh, get over fights and 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 uh, work through their their sort of hatred of one another, <laughs> yeah. and I think that's a really great scene. And then later on, you see Wilma uh, telling you know because throughout the film, Homer is trying to kind of push Wilma away because of his own insecurities, but she keeps saying you know I I love you, I want to be with you, and and they finally have this scene towards the end where he shows her what his evening routine is like of taking off his, his hooks and uh, how he's had to learn to do so many things without his hands. And he keeps talking about how helpless he feels because, you know, if the wind were to blow the door shut, he wouldn't be able to open it, uh, that sort of thing. And he says, you know, this is not going to be easy. And she keeps telling him, I know it's not going to be easy, but I want to be here for you. I love you. And, and I think that really does a good job of sort of establishing those two women as being sort of the equals of the men in the film. Yeah. That was one of my favorite scenes in the movies. I love that. I love it when a person is laid metaphorically naked and just has to, and someone else has to accept them or, or, or reject them. And it's better when they are accepted, I, I admit, but yeah, uh, Wilma, Kathy O'Donnell absolutely nails it. And, I definitely got to give props to Millie. It's nice seeing a, especially in these in these kind of kinds of movies, uh, the the old, stable like semi stable couple, just the mm -hmm. couple that's been through the ringer, and because in my experience of being you know, in a long term relationship, it is it can be an up and down. It, you you're up, you're down, you're in, you're out. It's kind of what it what it really is. I dislike the shoehorning of peggy uh and um fred together I, I it felt like we don't need another woman to rescue the man because there's there's the there's the hint of of that happening and i i wish he wish they could have allowed fred to get better through his work through moving forward because he you know he himself says he's like sort of He's moved. He's moved backwards. He's moved back to where he was before the war started. 
and I the the whole the, the Peggy thing felt like those were some of the scenes that dragged the most most for me. I I think it was no, glad, I, was definitely glad to see Ma- Mar- uh, Marie leave though. She was, she was <laughs> terrible. Yeah, I mean Marie is very much uh, presented as an unlikable character almost from the beginning. The fact that you have Fred. When Fred comes home, he immediately goes to his parents' house and learns that Marie has moved out and is living in an apartment downtown. And for the first day or so, Fred can't get into the apartment. He keeps buzzing her, but she doesn't answer. Um, so right from the start, we're kind of prone to not like Marie. Um, and I can see where you're coming from with, with the Peggy stuff, the Peggy-Fred stuff. I mean, it, it does feel a bit tacked on at times. Um, but I think one thing to take into account is that this, this is a melodrama, um, and that's kind of what Weiler specialized in. Um, so you have to have that very sort of, uh, emotional overwrought type of relationship, uh, I think within, within this type of storytelling. Yeah. But it, you know, it doesn't have to be a VC Andrews. This man (laughs) is the love of my life and I'm only 19. I'm going to love him forever. you give us like a few more scenes together, right? Just, uh, just it, you know, it's a long movie. It's like you could tighten it up just a little bit, and I think it could be, you know, it's it's very good. Spoiler: mm-hmm. it's a very good movie. It could be so much better if you just got a little bit out. What is it like watching this movie, knowing what we know about uh, the trauma of war, uh, the personal lives of soldiers, and how and more importantly, how society has moved forward because we are now seventy years divorced from this film. How does it hold up? How does it stand up to say a more modern interpretation of the home front, the coming home, the post traumatic stress disorder? Does it does it ring false, or is there still some truth there? No, I definitely think there's some truth there, uh, and I I think it's interesting that you mentioned how does it stack up against a more modern one because. This time around, as I was watching it, and I talked about this with my partner, and she had a similar idea. One of the things that I, one idea that I had while I was watching it is that it would make a very interesting double feature with The Hurt Locker. I, dude, I totally wrote that down. (laughs) I totally wrote that down as well. (laughs) Because it's covering a lot of the same sort of uh, thematic ground. Uh, to a degree. Um, you know, the Hurt Locker is all about these guys kind of coming home and trying to reintegrate into society and finding that they're having a very difficult time. Uh, because even now, almost 70 years later, we, we have sort of acknowledged PTSD and uh, are more red- readily accepting of it, but there is still a bit of a stigma about PTSD. You know, we, we still tend to uh, uh, marginalize people who are suffering from that. And you can see that uh, in the fact that it takes so long for them to get help. Uh, right. You know, even from the government that sends them out to fight, it takes a long time to uh, uh, get help. Um, and when you watch a movie like The Best Years of Our Lives, which came out right after the war. I mean, this is 1946. That's the year after after World War II ended officially. Uh, back then, they didn't really even acknowledge P- 
PTSD. As you said earlier, you know, they, they called it shell shock. They had a bunch of names for it. It was shell shock, battle, battle fatigue, old soldier syndrome. Uh, these were all sort of euphemisms uh, designed to sort of cover over what was going on. Um, and if you're ever, and if you and your listeners are ever really interested in seeing uh, uh, a portrayal, a more realistic portrayal of, of the, the effects of PTSD, there's a really great documentary from, uh, I think it's from 1945, called Let There Be Light. And it was directed by John Huston. Uh, and it was suppressed by the military for 30 years because they worried that it would really? like destroy uh, the morale among the men. But it's he was able, Houston was able to take his cameras into a military hospital and film the rehabilitation of men suffering from shell shock, from combat fatigue. Uh, and you really see the toll, the impact that it takes on these, these soldiers. Um, and I think Best Years of Our Lives does a really great job of sort of tapping into that idea because one of the things and, and this goes back to something you said before about how, how Dana Andrews' character, how Fred was, was talking about uh, sort of getting back to work and, uh, uh, you know, using that to sort of become a man. One of the things that the military told people back then was that you had to sort of engage in manly, masculine pursuits. Uh, to remasculinize yourself. So they, they emphasize, you know, playing sports and finding a job and becoming the breadwinner again. Uh, those were ways that men were sort of told to, to uh, rebuild their, their, their themselves, essentially. And it, it's, they, they also told people not to talk about this. Yeah. Like one of the things that you weren't supposed to do was talk about it. And you see that in the film, there's the great scene when Fred is having his nightmare the, 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 after they get drunk at Butch's. And he starts having that nightmare and Peggy has to go in and talk him down. Uh, but you notice she doesn't really, they don't really go into why he was having the nightmare. It's just, you're safe now, you're okay. They're avoiding talking about that. So it is a, a very kind of realistic portrayal for the time. And as far as how it compares to today, I mean, there are still people that have a hard time talking about their the the their experiences during the war and the impact on them. Uh, so I think in that regard, this movie is still pretty relevant, even as it is sort of rooted in that 1946 aesthetic. Yeah, and again, it's we can only judge the we can't go back in time and watch this through the eyes of a 1946 audience member we are watching it in 2017 where there's been loads of research and many more you know pop culture references to post-traumatic stress but i imagine at the time this was again having you know maybe maybe i'm not mo all up on my 1940s war films there were so many of them or you know the more intimate looks at world war ii i imagine there's a there wasn't a lot of talk of or even mention of this sort of shell shock, you know, not everything is quite right. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the old idea that, you know, war is the easy part. It's coming home. That's, that's difficult. That I think is because in, and I am not 
disparaging. I'm not impugning. You're following when you follow orders. That is very easy. When you have to come mm. home and just not have anyone telling you really what to do, that seems incredibly difficult. And I mean no disrespect there. Just it's it's a hard it's a hard thing building your life back up. And uh, some people do it. Uh, for instance, Alan does it pretty well. He, Alan has the you know he goes back to be a banker, but he's also bringing that experience as a soldier to like fight for the little guy, fight for fellow GIs. He has this great speech where he's like yeah, at this party, at this uh, banquet for him where he's sl- slyly taking down his boss because his boss is like, well, we can't depend on this guy. And, he's, and Alan's like, no, we can because he's a soldier and I know people. And he's he's good. It's uh, it's 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 a great piece of acting from a great actor, Mister Mister Frederick March. Um, yeah, uh, Chris, when mm-hmm. what do you focus on in the movie when you are teaching this? Is it the represent? Is it just the representation? Is it like the soldier aesthetic? Is it uh, what is it? What is it? Well, ultimately, when I talk about this film in class, because I I show the scene where Fred has his nightmare uh, in class, and then we talk about it. Uh, because what the way I structure the class is we start by talking about masculinity in World War II and then work our way up to today. So we talk about the links between war and masculinity, because a lot of societies throughout history uh, have really conflated those two ideas. War is structured as this very heroic, powerful thing and it's a way for men to go out and sort of prove their manhood uh so what we talk about in the class is that uh that idea of coming home and having your manhood sort of uh uh broken by war uh because that's essentially what's happened to these guys they went off with this very sort of specific idea of what it meant to be a man and now they come back and they're having a hard time sort of um sort of uh uh, fulfilling that idea uh like you said al kind of is is handles it the best because he immediately goes back to being a banker he immediately goes back to being the head of his household you know he's the the patriarchal figure uh in the stevenson family and he but he compensates through drinking because he drinks a lot in the film. Yes. Uh, you know, he's on the verge of alcoholism in the movie. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but on the, then you on the verge, and that's important. I don't think they yeah. can really get into him being a full blown drunk in this. But right. Yes. He's 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 almost there. He's teetering. Yeah. But then you have uh, Fred, who is having a hard time readjusting because he's having a hard time holding down a job. Uh, he feels like uh, he is not in the position of power within his marriage because Marie is, you know, constantly questioning his authority and berating him and bullying him. And uh, and then you have uh, Homer who feels like he is now less of a man because he's lost his hands. Uh, and he has to sort of learn how to function that way. Uh, so when we talk about this film in class, you know, talk about this idea of uh, the, the sort of remasculinizing after you come back from the war and how you do that when you have been so uh, uh, demolished 
uh, both sort of emotionally and to some for some people physically. Because when, you know, another idea that this film kind of taps into is that that idea of uh, like the prostheses, you know, the, the hooks that uh, Homer has were not just a symbol of his wound, but they were also a symbol of like American ingenuity and uh, the scientific advancement that sort of tie into the American identity uh, as this leader on the world stage. So even those things, as they sort of show off Homer's uh, failings as a man, they also show that, hey, we can rebuild these guys. We can, yeah. uh, you know, put them Bigger, back together. Stronger, faster. Better, faster than they were, <laughs> yes. He is, uh, he is fantastic with those. Like, it's, like he is more, more adept at uh, fine-tuned, motor skills than i might be and i have both my hands <laughs> yeah uh yeah homer homer's great and also uh, on that point a man does things with his hands like that's how he provides and to lose those is to lose an essential part of who you are as a man perhaps it's even more damning than losing the more the, the masculine sex organ shall we say uh because this is how you make your living in the world you go out and you build you create especially back in the back in the 40s you yeah know, when you had factory jobs and 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 all this stuff and to have that blown away uh that will absolutely put a damper on you and while i will admit harold russell is not the best of actors a he is not an actor and b he is perfect in the role of homer he just he's he's charming and delightful when he needs to be but when it comes to bringing the the pathos it is shall i say almost beyond acting because he i am sure he has like he has gone through this story many many times in his own head in his own life like he lived this in, to some to some degree or another and therefore can connect with the character in a way that i don't think dana andrews or frederick march i'm not sure if they if they served served time but there's just no way that they or anyone could compare really yeah and i mean i think i think you see that uh there's two sequences i think that you can compare to each other and and you can see even though harold russell is not a trained actor i think there's a moment when he kind of blows dana andrews out of the water because you see the scene when fred has his nightmare uh, mm -hmm. and it does feel very kind of affected uh and showy in a lot of ways you know he's lying in bed and he keeps screaming you know oh my god the plane's on fire we gotta jump we gotta jump and then he breaks down crying uh but there's that moment towards the end when wilma uh finally convinces uh, uh homer that she's gonna stick around and he lies in bed and she kind of you know she pulls the door shut but not all the way because that way he won't be trapped in there and they just have that shot of homer laying there looking up at the ceiling and he's got that one little tear coming out of his eye and that yeah. is the, the most affecting one of the most affecting performances i've seen uh on film and when you compare those two i mean there's just there's right to me homer is, his performance is much more powerful than than dana andrew's yeah. performance at it's, that point it's, it's brando-esque almost it's <laughs> like the very natural style that uh that he brought to it it's uh it's a very affecting movie i will admit that when a movie ends on a wedding <laughs> i get kind of annoyed especially when they go through the entire like 
the entire abbreviated ceremony. I didn't quite like how the film sort of just kind of stopped. It got the uh, Fred and Peggy, who again I have problems with. They got together. Fred mumbles something. It's a very poorly delivered line with no gravitas whatsoever, and then it just cuts out. Um, what are your thoughts on the ending? Is it is it good? Is it necessary? Could we they have done it better? Just how do you how do you feel about it? I mean, again, I, I kind of go back to the the idea of it, you know, being a melodrama, and we kind of need that emotional uh, uh, crescendo at the end of the film. Um, and I and I, I I I'm happy that Homer and Wilma get together, and I'm glad that we get to see them get married and uh, you know start to build their life together. And and I'm not as down on Fred and Peggy, I guess, as, <laughs> as you are, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like maybe they could have gone a different direction. I'm just not sure what that direction would be. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there was an interesting comment you made before about how men build with their hands, especially during that time. And that's how they provide. And I think one thing that we get that's really interesting during that ending is that we find out that Fred gets that job, uh, Tearing yeah, down the, tear, the planes. And uh, turning and them was, into homes, which is, it's a very poetic uh, idea. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, and, but I mean, right there we see that he has sort of begun the, the uh, uh, rehabilitation process because now he's going back to building things with his hands and uh, doing that very manly thing. Yeah, and, and, and not, only, not only that, he's, taking, he's building something with his hands that di- is directly related to to his he's literally he's literally deconstructing his past his night because yeah. you know he had the he, what what happened there he, he was in a crash or something and he was trying to get his um a colleague out and i believe he did save him to at great personal cost so he was but he's haunted by the by the incident so this allows him to take some power back and be like all right these are the, these, these are the planes that are you know they've been decommissioned they may never have flown in the first place and now he can turn them into something productive for people like him, for people returning home. They become prefabricated homes that will, you know, that this was an actual program. I've, mm-hmm. I, I looked this up. This, this actually did happen. They turned mm-hmm. all the, the B-52s and flying fortresses and whatnot into prefabricated homes. And that helped create the uh, the urban, uh, you know, the suburb, suburbia, really. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a it's a fascinating and a wonderful it's a wonderful end to it's so wonderful that I just wish they didn't need the they didn't need the lo- the love story at the end because he had found his his peace at last he had got, he was the most I think he was one of the most tor- tortured because he was the one who didn't have an easy out really to uh, in in this film and so when he when he got there that was that was great and it was also a wonderful a wonderful scene where he's in the cockpit and mm-hmm. the camera's just a little bit low and you can hear the, the sounds of actual war and the planes, you know, crashing and, you know, explosions. Uh, it was a brilliantly, brilliantly directed scene, I think. While yeah, was at it. Yeah. And I think another thing, too, uh, uh, why they, why Weiler kind of chose to end it this way is, is to give the, the post-war audience that sort of fairy tale happy ending. Yeah. Uh, that would help them leave the theater feeling upbeat and and uh, you know looking forward to the future that that yeah. was 
spread out before them. Right. Would you say they were looking forward to the best years of their lives? Uh, uh, see what I did there? That's uh, uh, the name of the movie. You get it? Because it's that. Perhaps, perhaps because we're living in a dark age, I'm feeling a little more cynical uh, ah. in my t- in my time. But all right, we should wrap this up. Chris Olson, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you if they want to talk to you about movies, about masculinity, and pop culture? Well, uh, if they want to, they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am located at Christopher Olson. Just take all the vowels out of Christopher and you will find me. And it's O-L-S-O-N. A lot of people tend to spell it with an E-N, so I have to specify. No, no. They can find my uh, I, my blog is a bit dusty these days. I haven't had time to update it, but uh, they can uh, find me uh, at WordPress. It seems obvious to me. WordPress.com. Uh, they can find the book I wrote, Possessed Women, Haunted States, which is a book all about exorcism films. Uh, and they can follow the podcast, uh, the Pop Culture Lens, uh, by just googling Pop Culture Lens. Uh, they can find us on Podbean, on iTunes, uh, on Tumblr. Uh, we have a Facebook group, uh, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, you did a, you did a great episode on the thing recently, and you mm. have a Doctor Who episode coming up in a couple yes. of days. Yeah, oh. we we have a uh, it's a classic Doctor Who episode because the the gist of the podcast is that we looked at we look at the media of the past, so we decided to look at classic Who. Uh, with our special guest, uh, Paul Booth from DePaul University, who is probably the leading Doctor Who scholar in the country. Is he a Doctor Who doctor? Can you get a PhD in Whoology? He is not a Doctor Who doctor, but he does teach classes about Doctor Who. Man, I need to go back to college. It sounds so much more fun. this has been Oscar Watch. You can find us at uh, Oscar Watch Podcast uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Oscar Watch Pod. Write us an email at OscarWatchPodcast at gmail.com. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, and I should get a bunch of other things. But like and subscribe, leave some reviews. Next week on the podcast, Alex will hopefully be back. I'm thinking so. We also have a special guest on to talk about the 2011 Best Foreign Language Film winner, A Separation, which has some relevance to this year's Oscars, which are very, very, very close. I realize that now, and we should talk more about that. Chris Olson, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, getting to talk movies with you. Uh, I'm sorry about Amadeus. We'll get you on for something else, though, if you're so inclined. Best of luck to you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And as always, we'll see you on the red carpet. History repeats itself. Try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one and you can have.